1: Hello, Trojan fans, and welcome to episode number 169 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is May 9th, 2011. We've got a great show for you this week on the podcast. If you don't know, the Peristyle Podcast is our weekly internet radio show talking all about the USC Trojans, and we'd like to answer your questions on the show, so if you have any comments or questions, whatever you want to talk about, email us, podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address or you can always give us a call 206-888-6755. Call that number. We can you leave a voicemail for us. We'll play that voicemail on the air and answer your question on the Peristyle podcast. And uh, first up on the show, we have from a remote location, secret remote location, Coach Harvey Hyde, who always joins us in the first segment. Coach, how you doing?
2: Buddy, I'm doing great. I tell you I had a great secret assignment a week ago and I just wanted to say I'm sort of in a bunker here. Uh, I don't want to say that I was part of the Navy SEALs or not, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's pretty secret of where I've been, so I'm just going to have to leave it at that. But it's great to be with you.
1: Great to have you on, Coach. And wanted to thank our sponsor for the segment, Southern California Tickets. SCTickets.com is the URL, or give them a call, 1-800-888-7287 if you need tickets for anything. Concerts, sporting events, theater, obviously not Laker tickets anymore, Coach, but still a lot of other sporting events going on.
2: A lot of things happening, and I dropped by there last week, too, and uh, got a couple of tickets. So go on by and uh, see uh, Curtis there at Southern California Ticket Service, and they'll take care of all of your needs. All
1: right. Uh, well, let's get right to some of these questions we have this week, Coach. And we didn't get to you on last week, so we got a few uh, left over. Here's a question from our good friend, Guy.
3: Hello, guys. This is uh, Guy, and uh, I'm calling about uh, – our defense next year, versus the spread, or the no-huddle spread. And uh, since Har—since Harvey Hyde has been proclaimed the, gr- the greatest mind in-, in college football, I figured I'd address my question to him. And actually, I, I go by what he would said on-, on an earlier po- podcast, that we have to practice against the spread every day in, in uh, practice uh, or- in order to be proficient against it, not just one week prior to Oregon. And I talked to Clay Helton after the game and sort of, Asked him about that, and he said, "Yeah, we're we're doing that. We're doing that." But I didn't see anything like I didn't I didn't see any any of that at the the huddle, and so I was wondering, uh, what if they practiced, uh, say, 20 minutes a day, nonstop, and just had somebody calling no huddle um, plays, and just it'd be kind of a good way of of uh, you know at least staying in shape. (laughs) But um, anyway, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Keep up the great work, guys.
2: Well, thank you very much. We appreciate your questions, and uh, uh, we'll do our best to try to answer those questions for you. I agree with you. I think you're going to see more no-huddle offenses uh, more and more. The University of Minnesota made a coaching change this past year, and I wouldn't be a bit surprised to see them uh, put in the no-huddle offense. Uh, It certainly has been successful against USC, so things that work against certain teams, you know coaches steal from each other they look at uh, tapes of games the uh prior year and look at way teams hurt teams and so on and everybody steals from each other ideas and so on as far as game planning and unless you you know work on some of these things you don't know really what to expect i remember several years ago when alabama brought the wishbone to the coliseum and uh, beat usc that was years ago excuse me for saying that because uh the bear had to find a way to beat John McKay. And I can't remember if it was in the Coliseum or down in Tuscaloosa, but it was a whole different thing that they weren't ready to play. So you've got to get ready to, and the only way you can get ready to play these type of offenses, practice against these type of offenses. And the condition against these types of offenses, is remember they do it every day. This is what they do in practice. Oregon does it every day in practice. Uh, these other teams that run the no-huddle office, they do it every day in practice. So I agree, you have to work on that stuff every single day because it's a different pace and a different non-substituting type of defense that you have to work against and you just can't become familiar with it in four days of practice as far as preparing for a game plan against a team that does it every single day. And it does take different conditioning as far as preparing yourself for that. So I think you do have to work against it. Uh, I did not see FC work against it this spring. Obviously, I didn't go to the Tuesday and and Thursday practices. I went to the Saturday practices. So maybe they they practiced uh, against it then because that's a good time to tape everything and see what works and what doesn't work and teach uh, with that during the summer months and fall camp on, on how to stop who made mistakes and who didn't play it well and what's your best combination of players to play against a a high-speed option type of offense with the Wildcat is. The Wildcat puts a lot of stress on your defense, but it brings another back or skilled person into the offensive schemes when you have a great quarterback that's back there that can run, pass, and do all the different things that they certainly can do. They stretch the field and and cause a lot of problems for your defense. And unless you see things all the time like that, it certainly does equalize it. You know, you see some of the best teams, coach teams in the country, and I'm not saying that other teams aren't coached well, but teams that take advantage of their personnel probably better than any other teams in the country. Number one, the Air Force Academy, where they run the option up there, and uh, they run it as good or better than anyone, and they equalize the playing field because people can't really get ready for them uh, that quickly. Also, I'd say Navy now has made great strides in that, and Army now is running the wishbone in the option uh, offense, which has really uh, improved their program. So whenever you go against these type of teams, you're not prepared for them. Now, when you have better athletes, great athletes, and they're doing something different, now, you know, that really equalizes the playing field or maybe even puts you ahead of other teams because all you get in these teams that are doing these these, these speeded-up offenses and stretching the field and options and so on have as, as good athletes as you do, sometimes in some positions better. So now you can see what that does to the playing field itself as far as equalizing the talent, and then if their talent is equal with you, they're doing what they do better than what you can do defensively to stop it because you haven't been working against it. So I really think uh, this is a trend that's uh, taking the country. You're going to see more of this type of offense all the time because uh, it's successful. So, uh, yes, I think you have to practice against it, and you have to match athlete for athlete. And the only way you can stop things like this is you've got to have great athletes on the defensive side of the football that run as well and cover as well and, Execute as well their assignments on defense to stop the wildcat offense.
1: Now, I was down there, coach, for all the practices, and I didn't really see that being run. I know, granted, it was six thirty or seven in the morning, or whatever it was, so maybe I was a little out of it. But the, you didn't see a lot of that, and I, I think part of the problem, coach. Maybe you can address this. Whenever you've seen USC kind of try to do these, to, you know, kind of run that offense in practice, it's always with a guy that. Um, you know, may, maybe ran some of that in high school, but he's a defensive end now or a tight end now. I remember like Fred Davis trying to mimic Vince Young, and you have guys that maybe played some quarterback in high school. How hard is that? Even if you do want to practice it, if you don't have someone running that system in your program already, and maybe it's good because Clay Helton has run that kind of system before, maybe that helps out, but Not having that experience—is it really? Even if you're practicing, is it extremely hard to mimic that without the athletes or without the knowledge?
2: It is. It really is because they don't execute it as well, and the kids don't want to do it. It's not what they've learned. They don't like to be on the scout team, but they got to do these things to help you become a better football team on on defense. And you know, you almost want to go to the extent of hiring hiring graduate assistants or coaches that have actually coached at Oregon or who or have actually coached at these schools that are running this type of offense so that they come in and they sit down in your staff meetings and they say, Hey, this is what hurt us the most when we tried to run this, or this is what we're trying to accomplish and know it firsthand on exactly what the object objectivities of the offensive is and offense is, and what, Chip Kelly and these guys and and Brian Kelly and all these Kellys that are out there coaching uh, are looking for and what the quarterback reads are and all the different things. It's almost like you have to have on your defensive side of the staff someone who has experienced it and can teach it and can run the scout team so that it really does run it the way that what you're going to see. And you just can't do it in three or four days. You just can't do it. And you've got to use great personnel and able to do that. You've got to take your twos and threes, and they've got to be the back, uh, run the scout team that week. And they got to run that good. And they got to know how to run it and execute it. Otherwise, your team on Saturday is trying to get used to it, something they haven't seen the whole spring. And they look terrible doing it. But the game is played so fast today that you really can't just, go through things half speed and recognize it anymore. You've got to scrimmage it. And I think that's why FC became a better team defensively this spring. They learned how to play defense by playing defense. That means hitting and covering and doing what's necessary. But they did that against their pro offense. So, yes, after you do that for five weeks, the same offense, the defense starts to recognize everything that's going on with the offensive side of the football, and the offense doesn't really become that effective anymore because the defense seen, has seen it all. They know exactly what the offense is trying to accomplish. So, yes, I, I, I really think it's very important since it's such a huge trend now. The no little offense that you really do work a lot on it, but you just can't get ready for that in one week. You just can't do it.
1: Well, folks, that's why Harvey Hyde, one of the greatest college football minds out there, as as was announced at the Trojan Huddle in the Coliseum, over the loudspeaker a number of times. You're, that's a very point I wanted to bring up, Coach. With two new grad assistants, you know, in the works now from the NCAA, maybe it 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 behooves these coaches to have one of these guys be a specialty, you know, offense, you know, assistant or something like that. That that runs spreads or options, whatever, mostly is on your schedule, and that person, you know during fall camp and during those weeks, keeps that in the back of your mind. Hey, this is how we're going to run it. He finds out who the best players on the team are to, to run his offense, gets a good quarterback that, you know, his secondary uh, designation is he's going to be the scout team spread option quarterback or something like that. And I, I think having that kind of dedication probably would help this team a lot.
2: I think it would too. And everybody that uh, is on the team knows that especially. They listen to him. That's his responsibility, and it's his job to prepare the defense for what they're going to see. And uh, I I, I agree with you 100% on this, Ryan. I think that that's where my emphasis would be. I need to hire people who have played the type of teams or played on teams that have beaten me with things that I've had trouble with.
1: Um, All right, Coach, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, I wanted to talk about scholarship math. We put up a, a story Uh, yesterday actually something was in the war room on friday talking about scholarships and essentially what what's happening is assuming that usc isn't going to get any relief we don't know what's going to happen from from the ncaa appeal but assuming they get no relief for the classes of 2012 13 and 14 usc would have 15 scholarships and have to stay under 75 total Uh, as of right now uh, there are 81 scholarships that's if everyone gets in from this class of 2011 there's 23 guys still waiting to get into school. So we'll see what happens with all of those. Um, but we put something in the war room saying that it looks like USC is going to be able to take advantage of the the early enrollee uh, loophole, I guess you could say, that they took it, that Lake Kiffin took advantage of for the 2011 class, where he brought in eight guys early, tried to bring in nine, tried to bring in even more because they didn't have that many. They had a lot of scholarships left over from the, the class of 2010. And they utilized those last year, you know, last February or this February um, for the class of 2011. Well, there's actually only 23 guys that were signed for the class of 2011, leaving two extra scholarships. So Lane Kiffin could essentially sign 17 guys, bring in a couple early guys. They got a a JC commitment running back um, that if he graduates in December, he could be one of those early guys. Or if. Maybe someone from the class of 2011 doesn't make it in. They could use one of those early rides for the the following year. Things like that. So there's looks like there's two extra scholarships available. But the big problem is that last year the USC was already under that 75 limit, so there was no issues there. Now USC's at 81 scholarships. So with only 13 seniors on the roster, that knocks them down to 68. Uh, That leaves only seven scholarships under that 75 hard cap that the NCAA has imposed. So there's a lot of different ways you could get attrition um, where a player transfers out, a player doesn't make it into school, flunks out, things like that. We've seen like Curtis McNeil not make grades. We've seen some of Vanuku not make it in, made it into the, the following year. And we've seen a lot of guys transfer out last couple of years, guys could leave early for the NFL. There's a lot of different ways for, for people to leave the program. Maybe kind of get your thoughts on, do you think it's reasonable that USC, there'll be that kind of attrition where USC could still sign a full class of 15 or maybe even 17 guys for the class of 2012?
2: Well, I, I really don't know uh, if they can or they can't because, first of all, we're waiting to see what happens with the appeal, too. And uh, I think that uh, the longer this appeal waits and you don't get a decision, the more changes are going to be made towards this appeal because of all the other incidents that have been happening at these other universities. So we don't need to get into that. But I wouldn't be a bit surprised to see them this year be able to go to a bowl game. The numbers change on the scholarships and everything because they have uh, paid attention to all the sanctions and they really have gone on and above Uh, anything that uh, they were supposed to have done. And I think with these other incidents that are happening, I think that's going to favor the decision of their appeal as far as at USC. But we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. But to address your question, it's a difficult thing. Because you have kids that want to come to USC, and you have quality players, great players, four- and five-star players that want to come to USC, and you probably have some players on your roster that were, and I hate to use this term, misevaluated or mistakes. Now, what I mean by that is they did not, you forecast a player to be a player that will, by his sophomore or junior year, if he isn't a five star player to affect your program his freshman year, to become a starter or a, a player that's playing on the field. There's a lot of players that don't reach that level of what you expect. There's always that opportunity or chance to call that player in and say, if you like to transfer uh, and go to a university where you can be immediately eligible, which they can be if they move down, then, you know, that might be the best thing for you if you want to play football. And there's a lot of kids that want to play football. And sometimes you have to be honest with that kid to say, you know what, it's not your fault that you're not playing. It's our fault that you're not playing because we didn't evaluate you properly or we didn't forecast your abilities. And maybe it's time for you to maybe transfer or go to a school or give them that option that they can do that. And we wouldn't consider you as a quitter or somebody that, you know, couldn't make it. Now, that can always happen. There were seven or eight players that did that last year when the NCAA allowed those players to transfer And when those players transfer like that, I can't help to think that those players are transferring because they really felt, you know, you could say, oh, they wanted to go to a bowl game and that's why they transferred and this and that. I don't know how many of those players went to a bowl game. I don't think any of them went to a bowl game. But a lot of them moved because of their chances of playing were better than other universities. So, you know, they could still take advantage of that. And a lot of these, I'm not sure if that's still in effect, but if you're a junior or senior or if you're a senior this year, you could possibly move to another university and still be eligible and play. So there's always that option. And, again, uh, you know, scholarships are only guaranteed for one year. Now, you never want to take a scholarship for a kid that has been loyal to your program and works his butt off, but you always want to be able to do what's best for a kid if he wants to do that. So you can always lose or have some scholarships become available there. Otherwise, it's very difficult unless you have some uh, type of, uh, as you said, kids coming out early or uh, uh, kids that quit the team. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to do that because you just cannot uh, mess with that number, and that's the number that the NCAA is really really hurt SC with because SC has been able to have that scholarship situation where they've been able to offer more scholarships and really been a sort of a loophole in the penalty they got where they've been able to go back and use scholarships that weren't used before in order to bring their numbers up to where they, they can compete, like they signed what, 30 kids this last year, 31 kids or whatever it was. So uh, I don't know what the answer is going to be with that. I think a lot of it has to do with the appeal. Otherwise, there's not any real way of getting your numbers down unless it happens like we just discussed.
1: Coach, did you ever run into that problem before? Not specifically this, but maybe it's towards the end of the class and and there's a couple guys you're waiting on that maybe are are reachers for you that are going to be really good players. You weren't sure if if they were going to go to UNLV, and a couple of them did, more than you thought, and then you're kind of in a, a bind where it looks like you have too many scholarships at the last minute. Has something like that ever happened to you, and how do you deal with something like that?
2: Yeah, that's happened, Ryan, and what you do then is you ask them to become a gray shirt, which means you tell them, we want you, we'll guarantee you a scholarship, but we want you to be a gray shirt, which means we don't want you to be a full-time student. You can't practice with the team. What you do is you come in and you go and you take 11 units. 12 units is uh, considered full-time. You go to school, you can lift weights, you can do everything you want to do, and then in February we put you on scholarship. And uh, that can happen, and a lot of kids do that. They, they Their parents are in a position to pay their tuition or they get loans. And, you know, you don't have to take 11 units. You can take 8 units or 6 units. The main reason you're doing this is basically to get ahead academically, or, academically, or you can go to a junior college first semester if you could be academically admitted and you're a qualifier you go to junior college you take 10 or 11 units there you've been guaranteed the scholarship and in february you come in on the next year's numbers or whatever you know position that could be and yes you could do that and i've ha- i've done that many times and you see a lot of universities doing that now when they go over their numbers they ask kids to gray shirt you call it
1: okay yeah i mean it's a uh... We haven't seen a lot of that at USC, and I think we saw a lot of that down south. And the, the SEC changed the rule, where instead of bringing in a class of like thirty-six dudes, now that you know they brought it down a lot, a lot differently. But obviously, this is a different kind of scenario, where there's guys already in the program, um, and you're working on. It. But I mean, th- there's a lot of steps that have to be taken here, and with with twenty-three guys that we're going to find out this summer, there's definitely some question marks there of guys that. Might not be able to get into school, you know, and obviously USC signed all these guys. They want them to get into school, but every guy that doesn't it opens up a scholarship for the, for the next year. But it's a, it's a, it's a such a hard situation I think for Lane Kiffin to be in because there are so many variables. I mean, you talked about the sanctions; there that could change everything. If if USC gets five scholarships back and up to eighty. I don't think you're going to see much of an issue anymore. It's going to be pretty much business as normal, business as usual. The 15 and 75 makes it tougher, you know, and Lane Kiffin did a great job getting the the roster bumped back up because of the guys transferring out, like you mentioned before. Now that the roster's bumped up, it's going to be a a tightrope kind of thing, trying to keep it up there, bringing in enough new guys and keeping the guys around. And it just seems like it's a very challenging position for Lane Kiffin and his staff to be recruiting in right now.
2: Oh, it really is because you've got great players who want to commit and want to come to USC, yet you've got to be very careful on who you offer because if you offer someone, you want to be able to come through and give that kid a scholarship. So you've got to be really careful and you've got to wait, and sometimes you tell the kids we're still waiting to see what's happening with the appeal before we can offer you a scholarship. And sometimes that works. Kids are willing to wait. And sometimes kids say, you know, I'm not willing to wait because if it doesn't come through, I might be turning down other universities that want me. So it's part of the problem and what the NCA has done as far as punishment towards USC in making this really a, 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 not a, a normal situation. And that's why I say that it's amazing what USC has been able to accomplish during the controversy that's gone on over the last year and a half at USC, come within about two or three points of winning uh, 10 or 11 games last year, having a great recruiting year as they did this past year, getting their numbers up uh, where they should be as far as now being competitive again, and all waiting to see what's going to happen with the appeal. I don't think many universities, and you've heard me say this over and over and over here, that there's... So many universities that could never have survived what they have put USC through. Uh, it's unbelievable.
1: It is. Hats off to Lane Kiffin and his staff for just keeping this together. And we'll see. It looks like another great class is being put together here. Well, Coach, we appreciate you uh, joining us from the bunker. And I'm uh, sorry we missed you last week on your secret assignment. But we'll be back again next week talking to you, ch- talking more USC football. Remember, to send in your questions for Coach. He loves answering them.
2: Thank you, a lot, uh, Ryan, very much, and uh, I'll be with you next week. And for all of our fans out there uh, and uh, listeners, uh, you have a, a great week. Drive carefully out there, and I know I'm a little bit late, but uh, happy Mother's Day to all you mothers that are listening, to. It.
1: Yes, happy Mother's Day to everyone, and thank you to Southern California Tickets. Thank you to Coach Harvey Hyde, and we're going to be back in 30 seconds talking with Dan Weber. Stay tuned.
0: on the other side of the break for more of the Parastyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287. 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. Or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham.
1: Welcome back to the Peristyle Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Abraham. We're joined by uscfootball.com beat writer, Dan Weber. Dan, how's it going, man? Everything okay?
4: Yeah, doing well. Trying to... Took a couple of days sabbatical last weekend to try to get uh, get get ready for the uh, what is it three and a half months till uh, till we get more football here. Although we got we'll have plenty of uh, uh, summer workout which ought to be fun with the uh, the new guys coming in. We're we'll, we're looking forward to that, but it won't be that long. Minnesota, uh, what is it hundred and hundred and some days? Yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> crazy i know it's like uh it, spring football just ended and it seems like fall can't get here soon enough but there'll be lots to talk about like you said uh, the off-season workouts players are just i think everyone's finishing up their finals right now and they'll, they'll take some time off and then players are back in there doing their their summer workout schedule with uh coach osmus the strength coach they'll start throwing again we'll be out there and the, the new faces will come from the class of 2011 so lots of stuff coming up in the next month or two
4: uh, a lot of pressure on uh... USC football. I don't know if you happen to see uh, Magic Johnson was being interviewed on a, actually a news show this week uh, on television and uh, talking about the three things that Southern California sports fans really care about: uh, the Lakers, the Dodgers, and USC football. So it's <laughs> like USC football is going to have to carry the uh, carry the torch for uh, LA sports this year. And I I think one of our guys was it. Oh gosh, cash. Uh, uh, excuse me. Uh, no, oh, i I, I having a blank out on our, our New York City poster on the Paris style. Who uh, Chase, uh, Chase from New York? Study, I'm sorry, Chase. Yeah. Uh, uh, did a study that uh, uh, if the Dod- or if the Lakers do well, that's not so good for USC. When the Lakers don't do well, USC's tended to win national championships. It's really when the Lakers blow out of the playoffs. When he had this chart of year after year after year, if they blow out of the playoffs, USC's got a much better chance of of, of really doing well in football. And actually, vice right versa. You think, well, they won the you know they the Lakers won the world championship the last two years, and how'd that turn out for USC? So uh, now they're they're blown out of the playoffs. So maybe uh, maybe his uh, his math will work out. We'll have to
1: we will definitely see and uh, there's a lot more talent on this the squad and uh, we got we had a lot to talk about with scholarships and stuff later on in the show but I wanted to get to some of this NCAA stuff now that the Todd McNair decisions down we got to talk about that a little bit. Um, we're getting some questions about when the USC appeal will come in and Evan wanted to know that he was hearing some rumors that sank that the uh, decision on sanctions could be coming out in June. And they put in parentheses two thousand eleven. Ha ha. Have you heard? Have you heard anything else to support this, or heard anything about well, when the sanctions I
4: guess one of the one of the things we heard was it'll happen about the time the Lakers are out of the playoffs. <laughs> and and the joke was, you know, well that that obviously goes till June every year. Uh, well, maybe not. Maybe not June this year. Uh, uh, so, you know, was that? Uh, You know, is there anything tied, you know, to the uh, the timing of, uh, you know, releasing it just because of when sports is is news and all that? I I don't know about that, but it certainly looks like, and and we had a posting in the war room last uh, uh, this last war room about how, and it certainly seems to make sense to us that uh, that the USC release. Because the USC case, when they appealed it, they exclusively appealed the over-penalization. And I think they went, you know, really exhaustively looked at every single case in history and compared the penalties with the crimes. Then they compared the USC case and showed how the USC case is completely out of whack, completely... Uh, out of the history uh, and the trends and the uh, uh, you know parameters of the penalties all through the years, that there's no comparison. It's just like a complete anomaly. And it's interesting that you know Thursday a week ago, the NCA finally got passed by the Division One Executive Committee. In Indianapolis, they changed all the rules about infraction's infractions uh, uh, committee and about the appeals committee and how they would do what they do and what people could do about it. For example, they're basically saying now at the N.C.A. you can no longer ever appeal a case or compare a case. So it's the apples and oranges principle of Mark Emmert writ large now where they say no school – can ever say, well, you penalized so-and-so last year for, for the exact same case, the exact same violations, and we're getting penalized much worse than that. Now the NCAA said, tough, you, you know, you can't compare any cases. So they can't change the USC case as a result, though. That's not the rule for the USC case. So there's some thinking that they had to get – Those rules change because we all said they can't possibly uphold the conditions, the standards that they've applied to USC to anybody else. That can't ever happen, and we knew it. Well, that's true now. It's obviously true. They know they can't. But they want to be able to do whatever they want to be able to do to Ohio State, one of their favorites, one of the schools with the uh, model compliance department that had such a wonderful you know, the uh, record of only 375 secondary violations in the previous decade, and uh, now we find out today, you know, last Friday, we find out that Ohio State had 50, we're hearing 50, cars purchased by Ohio State athletes uh, through one, basically, one group of, uh, uh, one automobile salesman, one uh, company, and ref uh, referred, athletes will refer to that that fella by the compliance department and there are all kinds of issues that are being checked into. One car for example, a two-year-old car where, where the purchase price is listed as zero dollars. Uh, so <clears throat> if Ohio State has got a situation where, let's say Reggie Bush, we had one car nine-year-old car and USC was hammered and one of the pillars that they tied, you know, uh, that case to was that USC didn't check all the paperwork and it wasn't filled out completely. And that was a horrific crime by the USC compliance department and and indicating a lack of institutional control. Where does Ohio State, if they have 50 cars, (laughs) where the compliance department was actually involved in sending the players to a place, and then the guy you know who was selling the cars was on the pass list for Ohio State games, which is completely illegal. What does that do when you look at what they did to USC? What do they have to do to Ohio State? And they don't want to have to do that to Ohio State. Clearly, now does that mean you know that they're also going to have to say to USC, "Yeah, you're right. Uh, you're going to." We'll accept what you, you know, asked in the appeal because it does look like maybe we've over penalized you by a factor of about 50 uh, times uh, what we used to do, you know, in cases like that. And yeah, we're going to go back and yeah, we're going to slap Ohio State on the wrist and we're not going to do anything really, really bad to them. Uh, They could almost do that at any time, but it surely looks like the reason it's been taking them this long is they wanted to change the rules for the other schools so that the USC case can never be cited as a precedent. And it certainly looks like that's where they're going, which would tell you I guess they could release it whenever they want to release it at this point in time. One theory was that they might want to separate the McNair release from the USC release just to make it look like they're completely separate cases. Uh, We'll see. But one would think now, for those who were saying maybe not until June, it could probably hap- happen sooner. But stay
1: tuned. Um, yeah, certainly stay tuned. I, I think I tend to believe more of the they want to distance McNair and USC a little bit. So there, there's been some rumors that could come out soon. Maybe it does. I mean, who knows? It, it's hard to tell. Um, I would, if I had to guess, I would guess it's going to come out, you know, weeks from now as opposed to uh, days from now, uh, JJB had a question too, Dan, and it was, it kind of touched on a lot of the, the things you, you talked about with, uh, comparing things like, you know, with, with Jim Trussell got compared to like Des Bryant who just has lunch with, uh, with Deion Sanders. And, and then he, he you know, loses a whole year trying to compare apples and oranges. And you, I think you touched on that pretty well. He wanted to know there's so much stuff going on here. Have you ever considered writing a book about all of this?
4: Yeah, I, To some extent, one of the things you think about uh, is do you want to get involved in this stuff every day for a long period of time and have to deal with the kind of things that you run into with the NCAA, the the number of people, you know, people with, uh, you know, law degrees and law professors and, you know, Fairly really high-profile jobs and at, at major universities, and you realize, man, do these people ever do what's the right thing? Do they where, where are the ethics? You know, involved in the people involved in this case, and and, and you look and say, and these people have been given the power to do what they can do, what they do to athletes, like you mentioned, they can treat, you know, uh, an unfavored. Uh, Uh, maybe, uh, dare we say it, because it was brought up with the Reggie Bush case, an unfavored minority kid, and say, he needs high-profile monitoring. He's, you know, Tim Tebow doesn't, but Reggie Bush does, Uh, that kind of thing. And to deal with people who think like that, and that's how, and they just, you know, they do what they're going to do, and then they change the rules to justify it, and you think, over the years, that's the kind of thing that seems to have been happening with this, you know, with this group. I don't know. You think about it. I know, for example, one of the things I was watching in uh, Memphis, Oklahoma City the other day, and uh, watching OJ Mayo, you know, and, uh, who's probably the reality of OJ Mayo uh, and and the uh, you know and, and the public persona of OJ Mayo are so far apart. He may be the least fairly represented kid, and I, I'll call him a kid because, you know, I really, really, really liked him, uh, and I really thought he was a wonderful uh, student athlete, great. I mean, a, a very, you know, he really liked, he wanted to come to USC, really liked USC. I think he probably, uh, you know, there were some, there were some issues there, but he has been, uh, I think, portrayed so unfairly. I thought Tim Floyd was, un, you know, prepared unfair you know, uh, represented kind of unfairly publicly, and all of that. There are a lot of stories that all tie into the USC case that you think somebody ought to be able to do. I mean, and, and you read, for example, uh, uh, say Dennis. When we kind of got after Dennis a little bit a couple of weeks ago, we 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 really liked Dennis. And uh, like everything about Dennis, but you realize as much attention as Dennis pays to it, he doesn't know the whole story or he just thinks he knows part of the story or they'll throw in a reference to something and then you say, no, that's not the case. That's not how it was. Uh, but they just don't understand the story. And because USC didn't say anything basically for four years, didn't defend itself, Pac-10 didn't say anything. They didn't get out ahead of, of the case. Now, you can say, well, they, they didn't think they needed to. They knew based on all the past NCAA cases. They didn't have to. There wasn't anything there. The only people they could have talked to wouldn't talk to them. Uh, and, and, you know, they got killed for that. And now we find out that it looks like the NCAA is trying to do everything they can to bend over backwards. To protect people who lie to them, who feel either you know, who play ineligible. I mean, USC got killed for playing an ineligible player, who they didn't know was ineligible. Ohio State hasn't gotten killed, and the NCAA has jumped through all sorts of hoops to permit a guy to get away with playing ineligible players he knew were ineligible. Uh, it's just it's mind boggling that. Double standard, the hypocrisy, and I guess the question you have is: if you get into writing a book about a case like that, you're dealing with nothing but hypocrisy and people who just aren't living up to any sort of ethical standards. Uh, you know, uh, and having to, you know, just immerse yourselves, you know, into something like that. So I don't know. It's it's a thought, but. Uh, uh, <laughs> you just know it's kind of a downer to know that you have to deal, you know, with all of the details of that. And even, you know, it reflects somewhat on the parasol when guys, you know, will write in and say, man, this gets me so upset, or I really, I don't want to think about this stuff anymore. It just makes me too mad. Uh, And I can agree with them. I I can agree with them. So it's a a little bit of a dilemma as as to what to do, but, almost have to be approaching it from, I mean, our perspective to do that book right. For example, um, we were talking to somebody the other day who really understands the case, and I said, you do realize you probably know the case better than anybody on the committee on infractions. You know more about it. You understand it better because they probably don't even understand their own case um, because they pretty much. It certainly looks like had made it It was one of those cases where you make the decision first, then you find enough, you think, fact enough of a fact pattern to justify your decision. The problem they had was that fact pattern kind of fell apart, uh, especially in the, the Todd McNair part of it, and now if it, If it turns out that the USC compliance department, even if it was, you know, two people, probably did a better job, Uh, you know, that's the one thing USC people were willing to, you know, uh, uh, say, yeah, you got us on that one. Uh, We only had a couple of people working there, and Ohio State had nine. Now, who knew that USC's two probably were doing a better job than Ohio State's, uh, Uh, nine. Uh, (laughs) Nobody knew that, though, I don't think at the time. Uh, Now we do. Now, where does that put the the case? It's actually gotten worse. You know, we thought last year in June after it came out, and you saw all the problems with the case, you thought it was bad. Now, it's, you know, or almost a year later, it's way worse. Everything that's come out has made... USC look better, and the rest of the world looked worse. The rest of the NCAA looked worse. I mean, the rest of their decisions. So, you know, it's a kind of one of those head-flappers that you just say, this is so wrong. But uh, Because if they take 10 scholarships away from USC a year that USC can't award, or, or 30 over three years, and they can say, well, you know, those scholarships will go somewhere else. But ultimately – those Division One scholarships, if you take it down the line, there will be, by the end, by the end of, the, let's say, the 120 teams in, in the Football Bowl subdivision, there are a finite number of scholarships. And if the 30 USC scholarships go elsewhere, there will be 30 kids on the bottom of the list who won't get scholarships. And that's a real significant cost to those kids. I mean they just blithely take away scholarships like it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, maybe obviously all the kids that USC would have recruited and can't will get other good scholarships, but they're going to bump other kids at the places they go, and those kids will bump kids below them. And eventually you're going to get to the bottom of the list, and there will be kids who are deprived, innocent kids, who are deprived of Division One scholarships, because of the USC decision and that's that's just not right honestly to be honest it's just not right
1: um we got another question that just came in Dan it kind of touches on some of the stuff you just talked about but from Bill it's kind of live question because I just got it on my phone as we were recording so I just put it in here Um, he says he very much enjoys uh me coach Harvey Hyde Dan Weber Gerard Martinez and all the guests and Last week's Pac-12 announcement brought some uh, pet grievances from him. He said Big Bunny being shared evenly and USC having to adjust its football schedule for television. He didn't really like that. But he said when the the commissioner, Larry Scott, was making the rounds and they interviewed him on a local TV show, uh, he admitted that USC had done a lot uh, for the conference. And when he asked about the NCAA sanctions and if they came down too hard on USC, he said he couldn't comment until... After the appeal, and Bill saying it doesn't make much sense because commenting afterwards doesn't carry any weight; it doesn't really help. He wants to know why the, the conference and some of the other Pac-12 schools haven't really come to USC's defense at all, even though USC brings so much to the table.
4: Well, I think it's timing, and here's what here's where USC got you know uh, got themselves in a situation where it was too late to comment uh, for any good. What happens with, in comparing him with, the, uh, and, and with the Mike Slive, the commissioner of the SEC, or uh, Bill, uh, uh, Delaney uh, in the, uh, uh, the Big Ten, is, uh, Jim Delaney, is that uh, those guys, lawyers, uh, Delaney worked for the NCAA, Slive was involved in, he started Contents USA, and he probably knows where more bodies are buried in the NCAA than anybody in history. Those guys get ahead of cases. So when something is just in its first stages, like the Ohio State case or the Auburn case, Delaney and Slive are right there, and they're all over it, and they're trying to shape the case from the get-go and trying to make it as uh, having as less of a, uh, little an impact on their conferences and on their schools from the beginning. The problem was USC, the Pac-10, nobody had any inkling what the, that the NCA was going to do what they were going to do. So they kind of acted like no big deal. Now, obviously, that's a terrible misreading of even though the NCA far exceeded what it should have done, that's still a bad misreading of the case. And that was, I think, uh, that was a combination of, uh, you know, Mike Garrett just didn't want to ever have anything to do with the NCA and made that clear. Uh Pete Carroll knew, clear, he knew what was going on at other schools, and he knew they were out to get USC. There's no question about it. I mean, that is not arguable, and, you know, you can say it's that old joke, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people are out, or aren't are out to get you. They were out to get USC. Pete knew it and wasn't going to have any of it. I mean, if you, like Pete coached at Ohio State, you know what's, I mean, there, you don't have to be anybody in Columbus, Ohio, to know what kind of car Terrell Pryor is driving this month. I mean, it's just not like that's a secret. So when they start yelling about some uh, uh, not completely filled out form of Reggie Bush's, and you say, what? You're telling this to us, and you're saying Ohio State has a model, athletic, you know, a compliance department? So I think uh, no one got ahead of it. The problem was when they then when they whack you and you're back into the appeals part of the case, then you really can't comment. I mean, all you do then probably is make enemies, and uh, so they got so you know they got so far behind the case that commenting probably wouldn't help. Now we did hear and we mentioned it in the war room, and somebody at the NCA or excuse me at the at the PAC, uh, ten, pac twelve offices, that in private, Larry Scott has really busted the NCAA's chops for how they handled the case. Now, that would make sense, because if I'm Larry Scott, and I'm trying to sell the uh, Pac-12 uh, TV rights for as much money as I can get on uh, the championship game and all of that, uh, a damaged or a limited UFC really limits my ability to, to do that. So... Uh, for example, and I think one of the things people haven't made enough of is if the NCAA penalties stick, and let's say you know USC to some extent is limited, isn't able to be the USC that they all I, I don't think that's the case. I think actually USC's plan, the way they've uh, recruited, the way they delayed the sanctions, and all of that that they've done gives them a chance to compete at just about the highest level possible in, in the years going forward. I'm I'm more optimistic about that. But uh, what that does is that actually penalizes the entire conference. I mean, let's say you get just ten million dollars less than your, uh, you know, than you would have normally. You would have gotten, say, if they if USC were riding high. Uh, that's like a million dollars a school. That's a that's like a serious fine. I mean, you know, that in effect. The NCA is fining all the schools in the Pac-10. I mean, and and that's what the difference was. The Big Ten and the SEC always understood that. That if one of their schools gets hurt, certainly one of their big schools, uh, that hurts everybody. I don't know that the Pac-10 completely always understood this. For example, they would fight you, the Northwest schools, to have a nine-game schedule, and you'd say, but. But that's going to hurt USC's chances to win a national championship. That's going to hurt USC's ability to bring back BCS money for the conference and all that. And those schools would say, so what? We want to play in L.A. every year, you know, whatever. Uh, So there was a short-sightedness, I think, in the Pac-10. But I can't blame them for not commenting at this point in time because uh, the case got so far ahead of them. And the NCAA acted so badly in this case. If you comment directly about this case, you pretty much have to attack the NCAA. I mean, when we wrote our stories, there wasn't any way to get around it. I mean, how do you say what the NCAA did in the USC case without looking like you're really going to answer them? Because if you point out what they did, you are going to answer them. So I think that might be, you know, we may not like – and part of the thing we have with the whole Pac-10, Pac-12, is that whole history of a decade of really bad, biased football officiating. That's demonstrably uh, the case that USC uh, didn't get a fair shake. If you look at the penalty statistics, and you look at, you know, uh, how a team playing USC was likely to, you know, more likely to get half the penalties than it normally gets in every other game of the season, or that USC would be. You know, the, the you know the bottom team every year in terms of uh, opponents' penalties. That can't be explained any other way other than some sort of uh, bias. that was unable to be uh, handled by Pac-12, you know, Pac-10 officials. They just didn't seem to be able to get over that. And USC knew it, coaches knew it, Pete Carroll knew it, uh, and the Pac-10 didn't do anything about it till this year, and they look like they're they're dealing with that but there's been this kind of resentment built up and you can understand how people would say i'd sure like to see you guys come out and, and and talk about what's happened to usc but they may not be able to right now usc isn't able to come out and talk about itself right now so i i wouldn't blame the Pac you know pac 12 pac 10 for not being able to do so either at this point in time
1: all right well dan that's great stuff as always that's uh Hopefully we don't have to talk about this subject too much longer, we'll
4: see. No, man. I I would think the NCAA even wants it to go away now. I mean, I would think the new rules they passed were to say, please make this go away. And one of the ways, if I'm the NCAA and I want it to go away, is I just say, thank you, USC, for your forbearance. Uh, Thank you for your offer uh, on your appeal. It makes perfect sense, and we accept it and we're out of here. Now, they're still going to have to deal with Todd McNair, but if I were the NCAA, again, and somebody always says, if I were the NCAA and I were smart, and I thought, <laughs> oh there might be a problem. Uh, and that might be a problem because they are in a bubble, and you just don't know. I mean, because the changing of the rules last week, you would think they know Congress is taking a look at what they're doing and they just passed rules that basically say we can do whatever we want, no matter what we told you, Congress, when we were there for hearings uh, in 2004 about guaranteeing at least equal due, you know, uh, due process and all that kind of thing. We're not going to do that. Are you kidding us? There's no way. And we don't want you even to yeah, hold us to any sort of comparative standards. So you, you can see why they might do it to protect an Ohio State or to protect their ufc decision but then you think gosh to the public at large um to the congress that really looks like they're justifying doing some of these things and you know so you can make a case on either side that it could go either way and you're exactly right Uh, so who knows
1: all right. Well, Dan, we really appreciate all the insights, as always. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. And we'll talk to you again next week.
4: Thank you very much, Ryan. Okay. Bye.
1: All right. And everyone else, thank you very much for tuning in to the Peristyle Podcast. We'll be back next week talking more USC football.